It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, I'm talking to Tara Westover, the author of Educated, and the philosopher Claire Chambers about John Stuart Mill. We're going to be discussing free speech... We're going to be discussing the marketplace of ideas. We're going to be discussing the religion of humanity. But we're going to start with the question of how reading John Stuart Mill can change your life. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Listeners can subscribe to Europe's leading literary magazine for a special rate at lrb.me ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. Tara, you did an interview in The Guardian about five years ago about books, about your favorite books, about the books that had inspired you and influenced you. And they asked you the question, which book changed your life? And you said it was John Stuart Mill's Essays on Religion. And I'm going to quote what you said, and then I'd love to know what this means. I think I know, but I'd love to know from you. You said that after you read those essays, you discovered something, learned something that you had not done before, which was, as you put it, to perceive your beliefs. You said, to perceive my own beliefs. So reading Mill allows one to perceive what it is to believe something. And I think that I think I get it, but I want you to tell me what that actually means. So what kind of beliefs are we talking about? Are we talking about beliefs about religion? But then what does it mean to perceive them in a Mill way? Well, I read quite a lot of Mill when I got to Cambridge, as I think you probably remember. Uh, I did my whole MPhil, my master's on it, and then quite a bit when I did my PhD. And, you know, Cambridge was was an interesting time for me because I, you know, I didn't go to school. And then I went to a university when I was 17. It was the first time I went to school. And it was a Mormon university, which it was a really good university, but it was a very ideologically kind of specific university. And at the time I arrived at Cambridge, I was 21, I think, and I was trying to work out my relationship specifically to religion. So I read these three essays on religion and he just articulated a lot of things for me that are, you can find them elsewhere, but I'd never read them before. There was one paragraph I remember in particular, he basically articulates his own version of the problem of evil. You know, how do you reconcile belief in an all powerful God that also allows bad things to happen? And, you know, when I was growing up in this religion and my dad's version of Mormonism was even more extreme than the than the mainstream. I'd grown up in a religion that had a lot of inconsistencies or maybe even things that looked to me like injustice, like, um, you know, black men were not given what Mormons call the priesthood, which is this really important power you get, sort of gives you the power to act in God's name. And, and black people, specifically black men, were excluded from that till 1978. And Mormonism believed in and still does believe in polygamy, at least in a, in a spiritual sense which is that I grew up with this idea that not in this life, but in the afterlife, I might be a plural wife. And 
you kind of grow up and there's this idea of God and he's all loving and he's uh, this wonderful being that you worship, but there are these things that you also have to believe in that don't really correspond or didn't in my mind correspond to like what a good being is. And if you ask questions, a lot of times what people will say to you is, well, God's ways are higher than our ways. And so we we can't understand them. And I remember once I asked a, a religious leader some of these questions and he said, it's like trying to explain television to an ant, you know, like you can't possibly understand this. So you just shouldn't try. And for a long time, that made a lot of sense to me that I thought, well, God's just a higher being than I am. So if, if I don't understand these things, I really should just obey and do what I'm supposed to do. And what Mel, Mel had a really interesting take on this where he said, God's ways can be higher than man's ways in basically degree or quantity, but they can't be qualitatively different. So he said, you can't tell me that I have to worship a being whose ideas of goodness are actually my ideas of badness, <laughs> you know? So like his morality, higher though it may be, needs to be recognizable to me as moral. Otherwise, he says, you're just worshiping power. And that I found so helpful at the time, just an articulation of what it means to have your own ideas of right and wrong and want to strive towards things that you don't yet understand, but kind of insist on keeping your own sense of like, this is good, this is bad. And I'd never read anything that explained it in quite that way. God can be higher than us in degree, but it can't be a completely different kind of morality. It needs to be recognizable to us or we're just worshiping his power. And I thought that it really just shifted things for me. And I felt like I could perceive a lot of things that I had been believing for reasons that I, I wasn't sure I wanted to believe them anymore. When you read it and you you perceived your beliefs in that way, what did it do to the quality of the belief? Because in the essays on religion, I mean, Mill is a utilitarian, and one of the things he wants to talk about is the usefulness or otherwise of religion, and that not only should it make sense in terms that are recognizable to human beings, but we should be able to evaluate it, in some sense at least. And it's one of the questions about Mill, and I want to ask Claire about this in a second, which is, can you actually do that? Can you both evaluate the utility of your beliefs, but also hold them as a kind of faith? But did you find that having Red Mill and someone writing about religion in this way, where he takes it completely seriously, he's not sneering or cynical about it, but he does think that we ought to be able to apply our own human standards of judgment to it, including to ask the question, is this doing anyone any good? Well, he can be a little sneering, I think, about yeah, okay. it sometimes. Right. Well, but by the standards, I'm sort of thinking <laughs> yeah, by the no. standards of the contemporary sneerers yeah, about yeah. religion. I mean, I can think of some people who are a lot no, he sneerier took it about religion. Exactly. Yeah. He took it seriously. He took it seriously. And I think he took it seriously in the sense that I think, and Claire will know more than I will, but it felt to me like he understood religion as a reflection of humanity. Like it is humanity in some ways. And I think... When I first was leaving Mormonism, I had this very naive, almost foolish idea that like, if we could just get rid of all religion, then this is the source of people's kind of irrationality, and then everyone would behave really reasonably. And, uh, you know, you go through this kind of adolescent phase, I think, that I very much went through. And then 
I remember when um, when the COVID vaccine came out and there's this huge change that's taken place within Mormonism with the advent of social media and online communities. There's been a, a slight shift, I think, in power and authority in who people listen to. And when I was growing up, if you were Mormon and the prophet came out and said, do something most people would do it. Like there's a big joke that one day the prophet is going to ask us all to sell our property and move to Zion, which is in Missouri. And I think when he does that, a lot of people will. Like it's a joke, but it's also not a joke. And this weird thing happened with COVID where the church came out and said, please, everyone get your COVID vaccines because Mormons were not. They were under vaccinated by a lot, especially when you factor in income and education level. There was this big gap and nothing changed. And so that was for me a kind of like maybe some of these local sources of authority, we need them. Like they're irrational and sometimes they can be um, not what we want. But there's a, a scary world also where we don't know where people are getting their information. We don't know what their communities are. And that I think is kind of the product that we have with the internet. Like we don't know exactly what people are reading about vaccines, but we do know that a community that used to have, you know, a body of men that used to have quite a lot of power have a lot less power than they used to. And that is not always good. Claire, is it possible to broaden this out? When you think about Mill as a utilitarian, so this is sort of how I think about Mill, which is famously, he was a utilitarian trained by his father to be a kind of calculating machine to evaluate everything in terms of its usefulness, that everything should be accessible in those terms, whether it's religion, or culture, or love, or art. And he rebelled against it. He had a breakdown in his late teens uh, because he realized that it was a joyless way of life. There was something self-defeating at the heart of the ultra-utilitarian approach. But he doesn't abandon utilitarianism. He still thinks it's the measure of things. And so then you have, and this is there in the essays on religion and in a lot of his other writing too, you have this sense that you can do both in a way. You can both think seriously about faith in its own terms, something where you may be do X or Y because of the people who are telling you to do it. You have a trust in them, a faith in them. You believe in some higher power. And you can also ask the question, is this useful? Is this doing anyone any good? And the doubt I have is, is it actually possible to do both of those things? And it's, you know, it's a question that's often asked about Mill, right? Is, it, is he really a utilitarian? I mean, if you really are a utilitarianism, doesn't usefulness win out? And therefore, it's not religion. It's not faith. It's just, does it do anyone any good? And yet there is Mill saying, there are lots of merits to religion. There are lots of merits to faith, because not thinking about the usefulness of things is itself useful. Well, of course, what Mill really thought we should be doing is pursuing utility as an end in itself, trying to do things merely because they would bring about utility or happiness in some kind of Benthamite way, thinking about happiness as being being pleasure. So he didn't want us to merely focus on the pursuit of pleasure, utility in that sense. But I mean, the way he puts it in On Liberty is he says, I regard utility to be the ultimate appeal in all ethical questions, but it must be utility in the largest sense, grounded in the interests of man as a progressive being, right? So you get this idea that utility means progress, and progress kind of takes over from the Benthamite utilitarianism as the goal for Mill. And so he has this kind of objective idea of what progress will be. There's a sense in which, you know, we can say that some things are better than others, some ideas are better than others because they're closer to truth. They bring us further along some kind of goal towards some kind of journey towards progress. And the question then is, where does belief in religion 
come into that? Can religion ever be something that takes us further along the path to progress and truth? Or is religion getting in the way? And I think, you know, Tara was right to say sometimes he is rather sneery about religion because he does cite religion or, or ways of holding religion as being the kind of thing that can get in the way of us holding our ideas rationally. So he uses religion as one of the key examples of what he calls a dead dogma, right? So a dead dogma is when we believe something, but we've sort of forgotten why we believe it. And he gives the example of Christian teachings, such as you know, that one should love thy neighbor as thyself and so on. And he says, well, people will just affirm this blithely because, you know, they'll hear it said in church, they'll read it in the Bible, they'll affirm this without thinking, but they haven't really fully taken to heart what this means. They're not actually living according to this idea. It's become a dead dogma, something people say, but don't fully understand or believe. So I think the thought there is that a religious teaching, like loving thy neighbor as thyself, could be a very virtuous teaching. It could be something that is useful in utilitarian terms that helps bring us forward further to progress, but only if we hold it in a way that is not a dead dogma, in a way where we fully affirm and understand it for ourselves as individuals. But then there's also the flip side of that. Satara, in the essays on religion that changed your life, he talks about this thing called the religion of humanity, which is, as it were, couldn't we take the best of religion in a way, that kind of, as he saw it, the selflessness, as it were, the willingness to put your faith in some kind of future. And couldn't we channel a more humanistic version of that so that people behaved in religious-like ways, but it was directed towards what Claire described as progress. And then I get back to the problem that I have at the beginning, which is, can you really do both? And it is one of the criticisms of Mill, which is actually, when you dig down into this, there's something quite paternalistic or even patronising about it, which is kind of, this would be a good religion for the little people if we could sort of take their religious impulses and direct them, as it were, away from Mormonism or whatever it is and towards humanistic progress we know better in a sense we know it's not really religion but it would work as religion for them or maybe I'm being too cynical now but that's you know the religion of humanity to me sounds a little bit like it's kind of the best of religion for the people who haven't really like Mill has thought it all the way through yeah, it's sort of what I remember of, of reading about the religion of humanity is there were elements of it that did remind me a lot of just traditional religion, the veneration of the ideal, the idea that you want to motivate people. He says religion ideally is meant to control the feelings, like it, it gets people to behave better by accessing their feelings, not just their reason, their sentiments. And he thinks this can be done in all kinds of ways where you devote people to this ideal of humanity and the human future and that people can venerate historical individuals whose good opinion they will seek and that will make them do good things. And yeah, they're not so different from traditional religion and they're not totally rational, <laughs> you know, to think, well, we're going to worship humanity. You know, he's spent a lot of the three essays on religion attacking the natural world and saying it's quite strange to look at nature and find morality there. Like all of these animals have been designed to basically kill and torture each other. And how do you look at nature and come away and think, well, God is a moral creature because he made nature. And it's not totally clear that his religion of humanity solves that because he's saying, let's worship humanity. But you 
humanity is capable of some fairly horrible things also. And he kind of wants to just say, well, let's worship the good part, the good things that humans can do and the idea of progress and the idea of the human future. And it's a, it's an odd thing for someone who did write those three essays saying, what's moral about nature? Can you explain that to me? And it's you could ask the same question about humanity. Tara, is it fair that criticism that is sometimes made of Mill, which is you know, this sort of double utilitarianism. So you can't do it, as you said, you can't do it directly. You can't seek utility for its own sake. You have to kind of come at it by a roundabout route. So you might, it might be through religion, it might be through the religion of humanity, or it might be through art or through love. You know, if you if you go into a love affair for its usefulness, you'll kill the love. So you have to believe in love for its own sake. But that then turns out to be very useful for human progress. And then the criticism that's made is it creates this sort of two-tier world in which there are the people, the philosophers, the, the bureaucrats, you know, it feeds into contemporary conspiracy theories, that you know, there are the people who, as it were, see how it all works and can see this would be useful for people to believe in religion, this would be useful to people. So government house utilitarianism, as it's sometimes called, that utilitarianism at one remove. Is that a fair criticism of Mill, that he creates this double standard for the people who sort of the philosophers who see it's useful and the rest of us who just do it because we actually believe in it? So I didn't see him that way. I think there is a tension in Mill between a kind of objective standard of progress, the sense that there is such a thing as getting better or getting worse, and that's an objective standard that we can identify. And what is a fundamental part of his ideology, his theory, is that we should have an absolute understanding that we are all fundamentally different and that he focuses on individuality, on diversity, on the idea that what is good for one person might not be what is good for another. And so we each must find our own best path through experiments in living. And so that kind of puts a needle, uh, sorry, a spanner in the works of the government house utilitarianism picture. It's not that the government can work out what everyone shall do and manage it like a, um, you know, sort of superior controlling force, because what is good for one person might not be good for another by virtue of their diversity. So I think that's the key for Mill, which is that we can, uh, we can and should learn from our own experiences, try to improve, try to get better, try to think about progress. But that doesn't mean we get to tell everybody else what they should do for themselves, because the lessons we learn from our own experience, that what works for us, may not apply to other people. So the individuality, which is key to his approach, I think, saves him somewhat from that critique you were levelling. So, so then we get to the ways in which John Stuart Mill, I think, most often comes up in contemporary political argument which is about free speech mm -hmm. and the idea that, as it were, one way to perceive your beliefs, to use Tara's phrase, is to run them up against counter-beliefs. They have to be not just tested, but they have to really bounce off alternative points of view to get full value from them. And indeed, it's one of the ways that you come to understand whether they are worth anything. If you sort of hold on to them and treasure them and cosset them, they become dead dogma. So they have to be out there in the world being sort of duking it out with other beliefs. So Claire, I'm going to ask you just to summarise Mill on, on free speech and, and where its limits are, because he does sometimes appear in contemporary political argument that shades into cultural argument mm. as the ultimate anti-safe space, champion of free speech, you know, don't be such a snowflake. If you believe this thing, if, it's, if this belief is going to have any value, you've got to let it you know, hear all the other points of view. Where were the limits of free speech for Mill? 
Good. Yeah. So it's important to remember, I think, that in Mill's arguments for free speech, he's mainly arguing against the idea of constraining speech. So it's not that we must all always be engaged in antagonistic debate, but that it would be wrong to suppress speech using using the government or using other coercive means, even if we think we have very good reason to suppress it. So he would be very much against um, hate speech legislation, for example, um, and the thought that we can prevent people from saying things that are hateful. He would be absolutely um, uh, content with the idea that we should restrict speech, which is an incitement to violence. That's one of the exceptions he himself notes. So when you're inciting others to commit acts of physical violence, that's the limits of free speech and we don't have to permit it. But if what you're saying is merely offensive or hateful or unpleasant for others to hear, Mill's argument is that that's not adequate grounds for for censorship. So why not? Well, mainly it comes down to truth again. So the way he describes this in On Liberty is he he writes um, that we should not be restricting speech because first, we can never be sure that an opinion we're trying to suppress is false. So it might be true. We might do something wrong by trying to suppress opinions that turn out to be true. Um, And examples of this might be, you know, once everybody thought that the earth was flat and the thought that the earth was round was a heretical thing to say. And yet, the idea that the earth was round was actually the true opinion. So suppressing it was a clear violation of progress and truth. But then he says, even if an opinion we're attempting to suppress is false, it's still wrong to suppress it. And why is that? Well, that's because firstly, if we try to suppress an opinion, we are assuming that we ourselves are infallible. So if I say... To you, David, you know, you can't say that because saying that is wrong in some way, where wrong could be a factual wrong or an ethical wrong, a moral wrong. I might be myself mistaken about that. And the thing that you are saying might be, might have truth or or worth to it. And it would be a mistake for me to assume my own infallibility and to assume I have the final answer. But then what if I am correct? What if what you wanted to say was Um, immoral or false or unworthy of expression in some way. Well, still, it would be wrong to suppress you because in having that engagement and having that debate, that enables everybody, you, me, everyone who hears us, the society in general, to develop our mental faculties, to test the truth and falsity of our opinions, to experiment with justifying them and defending them in different ways. So it keeps the truth of our opinions alive. And so he has this very optimistic idea that the marketplace of ideas, as he calls it, the the free speech environment, the society where we can all express any views at any time and debate with each other, that will keep reason alive because we'll all be engaged in this act of reason giving and debate and defending our own reasons. Um, so that will help us again to progress because our mental faculties will remain practised. Does it sound too good to be true, Tara? Sounds a bit too good to be true to me. Uh, It's interesting. I don't know. There's a way where I still kind of believe in it because I do think encountering people who think differently than you do is pretty important. And but I also think it matters how you encounter them. You know, slightly depart from Mill, but just in the the studies I've seen about how people get persuaded, for example, or um, the siloing that happens with social media, where we all talk to people who mostly agree with us. And how do we counter that? I feel like if you encounter somebody in an adversarial 
situation who thinks differently than you are, my understanding is that the outcome of that is you'll both just be solidified in what you think, you know, some kind of a debate actually encountering someone who thinks differently than you, generally speaking, in, in any kind of combative or even just competitive situation just solidifies, maybe even radicalizes both people. But what I miss is the chance that you can have to get to know people and respect people who think very differently than you do, you know, to actually have meaningful interactions where, uh, you know, and I didn't grow up with that. Mostly people thought the same thing uh, where, where I was, or they were all the same religion. The politics were very uniform. But I remember when I got to Cambridge, what was interesting was meeting people that seemed great in other ways, but they, in my mind, thought these appalling things that were so different from what I'd grown up with. Uh, and so your mind opens a tiny bit because you think, well, I like them very much. <laughs> and I, you know, they're totally insane on all these things, but I like them very much. And, and that I think is where slowly you can respect someone for other reasons. And then maybe eventually you can learn to respect them even when they disagree. And maybe you can learn that you're wrong. But I think the way that we encounter different ideas seems to matter a great deal. But I do think that Mill was right in that it's incredibly important that we do encounter different ideas. Like, that's for sure. We need to do that. And it's tricky when we don't live together and when we're economically separated and when we're geographically separated. I think it becomes really hard and educationally and in every other way. Uh, but I think fundamentally his idea that when you when you have meaningful interactions with people who think differently than you do, there's an opportunity for your mind to change. That's been my whole experience of my life, really. And so I, it's hard for me to disagree with it. I was just going to say one interesting study that I've read that speaks to what you've said, Tara, is that if you have a situation where people are disagreeing, um, you're more likely to change your mind if you have the opportunity to say what you yourself think. So if you're in a seminar situation, listening to the debate, uh, you know, and you stay silent, then you're unlikely to change your mind, no matter how clever and erudite and persuasive the things that you, the people you're listening to say. But it's if you yourself participate in discussion, that then you actually are more likely to change your mind. And I suppose the reason for that is something like what Mill is talking about, which is to say, you know, if you express your views and those around you then have a chance to engage with them, perhaps they might give you counter arguments that lead you to change your mind, but also you feel that you've been taken seriously. Right. You're not simply a passive non-participant or observer to that discussion. So that engagement with others seems really important. One of the challenges of this is, as you said, Claire, it's a highly individualistic account, as it were, what's good for me might not be good for you and vice versa. But it's also about argument. As you also just said there, you might hear good counter arguments. And again, there's that question about how you reconcile these things. So when I said it might be too good to be true, what I was particularly thinking of was the marketplace of ideas. Yeah, you know, the idea that this is a kind of market where a value will be set on things. If if enough people get involved and kind of duke it out or or trade, exchange views and trade views, you know, to use that market terminology, things will find their level. You know, things will get a value assigned to them which is close to the real value. Which is a a collective enterprise, but also quite a sort of mechanistic business. Two reasons to be skeptical of that, one of which is it is so individualistic, right? My value and your value will be so different. And secondly, the real marketplace of ideas, you know, these arguments come up on Twitter all the time. These arguments come up in relation to social media all the time. You know, why can't we all get along? Why can't we listen to what the other person has to say? But the way that ideas are actually marketized, the people who make money out of ideas by 
getting people to double down on the things that they believe in. It's not a market that works in a million way at all. Yeah. So I think first a defense of Mill and then next a, a reason that Mill is perhaps no longer so applicable. So a defense of Mill is to say that he's not arguing ever that free speech is guaranteed to get us you know, 100% truth. It's the perfect system. He's arguing that it's better than the alternative. The alternative where we feel, some of us feel we have justifiable reason to suppress the speech of others. That is the thing that we need to guard against. So the fact that any individual sort of interaction of free speech might not get us the right outcome doesn't in itself mean that Mill was wrong. It just means it's the best the best we have. But I do think that Mill's arguments look really ill-equipped to deal with the contemporary online context where we are no longer dealing with a situation where our engagement with ideas is um, mediated by how persuasive people find them, right? Instead, it's mediated by, as you say, marketized algorithms that are designed to feed us content that keeps us using social media sites, that keeps us watching, listening, and that has a very different kind of manipulative structure. So Mill, of course, is writing in a time where you're reading about ideas, perhaps in newspapers or in books or in pamphlets. You're hearing about ideas in public talks or in conversations with individual people. And so you really do have that interpersonal interaction in a very sort of real and immediate way. The internet changes everything, I think. And you can no longer be sure that what you're reading and engaging with is even the views of you know a real person. It could be a bot, it could be chat GPT. And certainly the the dominance of views that you're reading on any kind of social media stream will be mediated by the provider and by the algorithm rather than by how plausible those ideas are. Tara, do you want to come in? I think she said it perfectly. Um, I think that he's just not writing for the kind of environment that we're living in right now, it feels like to me. Like there's something about um the media culture that has evolved and not just with social media, starting probably with radio and television, just the kind of mass communication that, you know, maybe if you combine Mill and McLuhan, you start getting some interesting things. But what he's describing as this free exchange seems really far from where we are right now. So does that mean that the people who then cite him as they do in a contemporary context and say, you know, get over yourselves, as John Stuart Mill says, you should be willing to listen and hear Anything, however uncomfortable it makes you feel, to cite Mill in the contemporary context is actually to misapply him. He doesn't he doesn't serve that purpose for us because he is he's very present. I mean, you just have to look on the internet. You just have to type in John Stuart Mill and free speech, and you will find lots of people saying, He's your guy if you think we've all become far too squeamish about hearing the other point of view. But it may I... be that he's not the guy. I don't find him to be irrelevant. I just find him to be insufficient. So I think all of his arguments about the ones that Claire said to us so clearly about, you know, you don't know, banning any idea outright, what kind of authority do you need to do that? You know, I mean, I think about all the ways that, especially in the kind of tribal climate that we're in, that COVID and the origins of COVID for a long time, if you said it might have been made in a lab, you were clearly an idiot. And then it came around where it's like, no, maybe it actually was. But there was this like kind of cultural idea that you weren't even really allowed to discuss things that now we think might actually have been the truth. And it seems like there was a lot of ideology and identity and politics and just just literal tribalism, just believing a certain thing 
became a, a marker of an identity and of a political identity or maybe even a class or educational identity and had not necessarily that much to do with science because we just didn't know. We just didn't know. And I think that his idea that who are we to dismiss an idea out of hand is still applies very much. But I would say the climate has also shifted pretty radically and there are other things that we have to think about also. And I think it's not that the internet shows that Mill was wrong. It's that if Mill were writing now, he would apply his ideas to the internet and his, he would have the resources within his view very clearly to critique this kind of social media landscape that we've been discussing. I mean, he would talk about the despotism of custom as well, right? The fact that one of the biggest constraints to liberty, one of his fundamental values, is the feeling that we all have that we need to fit in and to do what is expected of us by others in the social group we belong to. And so we can see that exactly in what Tara's just been saying about you know, the way that our political ideas or our ideas about COVID have to be consonant with our identity group, with the cultural group we connect to. You know, Again, Mill would see that very clearly as being an example of the despotism of custom and a way in which we need to reassert individuality against that kind of crushing groupthink. So I think if Mill were alive today, he would be writing about the internet in ways that were entirely consistent with his earlier work. Um, so it's not that he can't be applied now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And Tari, I know you've written in the past, I've talked to you about this, that for you, the experience of education was that, among other things, it was dangerous in the sense that some aspects of being opened up to new ideas, almost by definition, were deeply challenging. Now, deeply challenging to you because you had a particular experience of education coming into it sort of cold uh, with a with a very clearly formed set of beliefs that hadn't been challenged and then bit by bit being challenged in different ways but that you know that is the other setting in which these arguments are heard now all the time arguments about the limits of free speech and what counts as harm and what people legitimately should be protected from and what people maybe should be required to be exposed to and these arguments are as live as any not on the internet side but on the as it were university setting side does does mill's argument have the same teeth now do you think for you do you do you feel it uh, in the same way that you did as you were going through the dangerous experience of being educated well i think when he's describing this this coming up against ideas that are different from yours i i do think that shifted culturally and i don't know i would i would be a little 
anxious about what it would be like to turn up into a university now with the beliefs that I had when I did. I mean, it was kind of tough even at the time. You know, I came in, I came to Cambridge in 2008 and I had grown up with all kinds of, you know, pretty homophobic ideas. And four years at BYU did not mitigate those particularly. And so I arrived at Cambridge during 2008, where the Prop 8 campaign was raging in California, and it was very controversial. And I arrived at Cambridge spouting what I would now say were pretty offensive ideas. And there is a movement, I think, now that basically says people need to arrive at a university enlightened. You know, it's almost like being enlightened is part now of the requirement of being allowed to go to university. If you have the right views and you've done the right things and you've proven that you're already enlightened, then we'll enlighten you some more. And that's a strange idea to me because I think I showed up with a lot of things that I would look back now and think those ideas needed to be changed. It was time to change them. They were, they were, I don't want to live that way. I'm, I'm grateful I had the chance to change my mind, but I'm also grateful that there were still a handful of people that I did meet at Cambridge who are willing to engage with me as a human being, flawed with my upbringing that I'd had, with the chances that I'd had, with the ideology that I had, and were willing to not simply look at me in a totally utilitarian way. What is your function? What is your purpose? If you don't believe the right thing, you have no function. You have no purpose. We don't want you. And I think I actually met a lot of people. I met a lot of people who were like that, but I met a lot of people who weren't like that and could almost say, you have worth despite these horrible things that you think. And so we will engage with you. And that is, we've talked about this before, but one of my first nights in Cambridge, I sit up all night arguing with a guy about same-sex marriage. And I said horrendous things. And it was kind of what Claire was saying. I got to hear myself say them out loud. And I was also saying them to someone who wasn't immediately attacking me, but was kind of more saying, you seem like a nice person, but how does this fit in? You know? So what happened is I didn't get all defensive and like, my mind didn't go into that state where I'm just trying to defend myself and trying to survive the encounter. I was actually listening, but I was still continuing to spout my horrible things that I'd learned. And, you know, he changed my mind. The next day I wrote him and I said, you were right and I'm wrong. And, you know, thanks for talking to me. And that doesn't always happen. But I am grateful that I, I met people who... You know, I was a terrible feminist. I thought feminism was a cuss word. You know, I thought you weren't even supposed to say it. You might turn into one, you know. So uh, and I was trying to spend time with other women in the group for whom they'd read all these things that I'd never read, didn't even know I was allowed to read. And and the temptation, I think, is to view people as worthy or not worthy, depending on how how enlightened they are. And I think that kind of goes against the whole idea of what education is supposed to do and what it's supposed to offer. And I'm very against this idea that everyone has to arrive enlightened. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would also say I think that that's part of the method of philosophy specifically, right, including political philosophy, political thought, which is that one of the things that as a philosopher I try to do in all of my work and also in all of my teaching is always to ask myself and to ask my students, what is the best objection to the view that I hold? Right. What is the best argument against my own position? And what's the strongest objection there? And I think that's the process of philosophy. It's often called you know, the, the principle of charity, trying to make your opponent's position as good as possible. And partly it's to do with doing sort of good, rigorous philosophy because you try to defeat your opponent as soundly as possible by imagining her to be as good as possible. But it's also about making your own view the best it can be. Because if you actually properly imagine your opponent's view as having, you know, real 
worth and significance and value, something you have to engage with, then most likely, you know, your own position will have to change and it will become more sophisticated and more nuanced and more plausible. So I think that the experience of university, of philosophy particularly, but of university generally should be exactly as Tara describes, namely a willingness to encounter difference, deep difference of opinion, and to actually engage with that as if it has standing and value, because very often it will do. So the challenge, I think, with that, which I completely understand what one's trying to achieve there, but often, I don't want to say it's increasingly the case, it must always have been the case, that when you hear the other side being put, you want to put the best possible case for that side. But part of you thinks, you know the reason why the other person is saying that, and it's got nothing to do with philosophical argument. You think it's because they belong to that group or that group. This is how most people, I think, experience and engage with opposing points of view, and not just online, I think, in life, which is in a world where human beings are innately tribal. You think that the other person's point of view is explained by something about where they fit in. So you then want to put the best possible face on that argument. So how do you do it then? I mean, is it, and I'm thinking partly about what the, the million approach to this is, is it having a deep human sympathy with the fact that people come from very different places with very different experiences and will see the world differently because of what they have themselves been through? And therefore putting the best face on that argument is to be open to the diversity of human perspective, or is it to try and turn it into a better philosophical argument? Right, but I'm not sure. I mean, so if, <laughs> there's a sort of version of philosophy that says that philosophy should be deeply abstract and not tied to any kind of real world experience. I mean, that's not the form of philosophy I hold or endorse. But even if you do think that, then as a philosopher, you have to recognise that you as an individual human being are grounded in a particular social and cultural context, right? And so if you want to be more and more abstract, then hearing the views of others helps you to dissociate or break the tether to your own particular cultural experience. I mean, I think of philosophy not as being the goal to be sort of completely abstracted from cultural context or identity. I think that's not possible, but it is to question cultural context and identity. And one fundamental way you question your own position is by listening to the position of others and learning from them things that you hadn't thought of yourself, things that you had no access to understanding um, because you don't come from maybe it's a particular geographical context or a class context or a sex gender context. Different experiences give different perspectives on the world, um, give different insights on truth, if you want to put it in Mill, Mill's terms, right? Help us to understand the truth a bit better. So when we try to understand objections or the or the arguments of others it's not just because we're trying to be sort of empathetic to them in some in a sort of patronizing way let's try and be nice to them and let them speak for a bit it's because they will probably have something to tell us that we didn't know or that we hadn't thought of or we hadn't understood in the same way so one way i put this is you know if you have a particularly entrenched disagreement let's take the example tara gave around um, rights for same-sex marriage or something like that uh, and particularly a view like that where both sides of the debate have a very deep passionate emotional connection to their views that kind of already tells you that there's something important on both sides which explains the passion which gives rise to that incentive to defend the view so strongly, which isn't to say that both sides are right or both sides have equal 
evidence on their side or something like that. But it is to say that if both sides have enough grounding to make their adherents feel so passionate towards them, then that's something we need to pay attention to and understand why it is that the opponent has that passion and what motivates it. And only then can we develop a, a stronger view of our own and perhaps change our own view. I think that's such an interesting way of putting it because I remember this guy that I stayed up all night arguing with, his name was Andrew. And I remember what he said to me at the beginning of a conversation. I can't even remember how it started. Somebody said something and I said something that was kind of in line with uh, my more conservative at the time views. And he turned to me and he said, do you mind if we keep talking about this? With my upbringing, I've grown up here. I've gone to these schools. I've lived in this kind of life. I honestly never met a single person who thinks what you think. I've never met anyone. And I would just really like to understand, like my ideas of the kind of people who think this is, I just never met anybody. So I'd really like to understand why you think this. And it was strange because it just made me feel like there was value to the way that I'd lived which was different from the way that he lived, even if I was wrong about this issue. You know, it was very different. I think we live in a time where I think people are exquisitely attuned to privilege in all of its forms, except for maybe education, where we're very aware of all the different ways that people can be disadvantaged or maybe advantaged. But I feel like education is the one thing that we still kind of have a bit of a mythology that people get it on their own merit. And mostly they don't, actually. They mostly get access to books and ideas and universities uh, because their parents can afford it. And I found that there was something behind his question that sort of said, you basically get one life and some people are born into a certain kind of a family that prioritizes a certain kind of education and maybe you're born into a smaller community that has like those really intense communal ties and strong religious beliefs and that comes with its own set of positives that's very different from what you get if you grow up in you know in a more urban maybe less communal but like let's say cosmopolitan upbringing and they're different and they both have advantages. But I, there was something about the way he asked that that made me feel like it wasn't like everything about me was backward. Like I could be wrong about this one thing. And there was still value to the way that I'd grown up. And there were things I might have missed out on. And there were things he might have missed out on. And I just appreciated that way of almost just looking at me like a resource, like, oh, I've never met anyone who actually thinks this. Can you, can you teach me about this? And, uh, and, and it was, it was so helpful in, in letting me feel like, it's not like if I'm wrong about this one thing that my entire life is bad, or my entire community is bad. Like we can be wrong about something and there still can be value to this. I want to bring it back to Mill and ask two more things both of which relate to things, Tara, that you've said or written. In Educated, you wrote about Mill. There was one line in particular that really mattered to you. It's not from um, the essays on religion. And it's about what it means to be a woman. And I think I'm right that the line is, Mill said, it is a subject on which nothing final can be known. And you said that really mattered to you. Why? Well, I had grown up in a world where a lot was thought to be known about women and what they're like. I thought women were supposed to be nourishers. They were supposed to be mostly interested in childcare. And there was just a certain set of attributes. Like you're supposed to get married at a certain age and you're supposed to have children. You're supposed to be a stay-at-home mom and you're supposed to really like that. And this is like in your nature. And I remember once at BYU, I asked one of my classmates, 
studying to go into law school. And I was thinking, maybe I should go to law school. And I asked him, do you think women can be ambitious? And he said, yes, of course, women can be ambitious, but their ambition is for children. And I just remember thinking, I don't feel that. Like, I'm happy, like, I'm interested in having children, but I wouldn't say I'm ambitious for them, you know, and it's just a disturbing idea. And so I didn't know what to do with the fact that I was a pretty competitive person. I was an ambitious person. I had all these other attributes that I hadn't really been brought up to think of as a part of what I could be. And what I liked about Mill, he didn't rest his argument on the idea that women are better than men or that they're not as good, but we should let them do what they want anyway. He just said, we have absolutely no idea. We just don't know. And I found that humility on the subject to be really persuasive. And also his idea that it makes no sense. A lot of the ideas about women and what, why they should do certain things, especially in Mormonism, have to do with the nature again, like women are naturally supposed to be this way. And I remember Mill had this line where he said, why would we don't have a law that says only strong armed men can be blacksmiths. Like we just assume that nature will take care of that. And his idea was if women are naturally unable to do something, it makes absolutely no sense to bar them legally. Like you're almost admitting they can by making a law about it. And so I, I found his humility on the subject, this idea that like, we actually just don't know the answer to these questions to feel much truer to me than any of the answers I had received. Claire, does, does that resonate in a way, as I've said before, he comes up all the time in these free speech arguments, comes up much less now in relation to arguments about feminism. But in some ways, he was more ahead of his time on that than on anything. Yeah, I think what he says in this projection of women about, about nature, as Tara mentions, is incredibly applicable to contemporary debates. So the reason he thinks we don't know what women are like, and what women are good at, and so on, is fundamentally because we don't know what women's nature is, because women have always existed in culture. And so he says, you know, we don't have any experiences of women living in a situation where they are not already pushed by culture into a particular kind of role. I mean, where Mill has a failing here is that he speaks of, as if only women are made by culture. Of course, men are equally made by culture. Um, that's a familiar mistake that men often make when thinking about gender. It's just think, imagine that they themselves are untouched by gender norms and that only the women are. But nevertheless, we can let him off because he's right about women. He would be right if he reapplied it to men as well. As well. So... We don't know what women and men are like naturally because we only see them in the context of a strong gendered society. But we use the word nature all the time to talk about what women should do and to talk about what's natural and unnatural for women to do. One of my favourite Mill quotes is from The Subjection of Women where he says, so true it is that unnatural generally means uncustomary and that everything which is usual appears natural. Right. And so that we use this concept of nature to apply to things that we approve of generally. So we don't tend to use the word nature to modify something that we think is bad. So, for example, we talk about natural health, but we don't talk about natural disease. You know, I'm pursuing natural health, you say, but not, oh, I have this natural disease. So we tend to use the word nature to imply something that is good. We tend to use the word nature to imply something that perhaps either couldn't be changed or, or shouldn't be changed, is fixed, is essential, is, you know, deep within us. And what we're doing more often than not, Mill says, when we use nature to talk about things like what women should do, what women are like, is we're just talking about custom. This is what we think they should be like. This is what we expect them to be like. And so decoupling that idea of nature from custom and saying that nature really has no 
place in thinking about gender because we don't have access to it. That's very much part of lots of contemporary debates about gender and feminism, I think. That still is a profoundly contemporary discussion to be having. The last thing I want to ask you comes from the same Guardian interview where you said, and I suspect this surprised your interviewer, where, where you asked, what's your comfort read? And I think they thought, you know, someone who's been reading Mill and all that, the comfort read will be something, you know, a little bit um, easier. And you said uh, the book you go back to over and over again is Thomas Carlyle on heroes and hero worship. And Carlyle and Mill, it's a fascinating relationship because in some ways very different men politically. And, and Mill was not in everything, but in many things, genuinely radical and in some aspects of politics, really radical. And Carlyle wasn't. And yet they were friends. People still read Mill. I'm not sure many people do still read Carlyle. I don't know. Some people probably do, but just just me. Just, well, you, just you. <laughs> Where's the, so I have two questions away. Where's the comfort in Carlyle? Because you didn't describe Mill as your comfort reading, and it's not. I mean, I don't think anyone would would, would say John Stuart Mill is comfort reading, but Carlyle is. Why? And then, do you get how these two men were friends? I don't. No, at the time when I was 21 to probably 25 and I was doing my MPhil and my PhD and I was very drawn to both of these two men and I was reading a lot by both of them. I was particularly drawn to Mill. I think I identified with Mill in as much as it makes sense to even say that. But what he was striving for was something I was striving for. And I, I don't know as though I could have articulated for anyone, including myself, why Carlisle? Like, why did I keep going back to that book? Uh, and I have, I've read that book a lot of times and I quote it to people and it comes up in my mind a lot. I think, I don't know if I can explain it even now, but I think Mill represents for me this kind of idea of what a human is and what it means to be alive. That it's like, I will build a sovereign self. I'll build a reasoning mind and a powerful intellect and I will create myself and I will act upon the world according to reason and justice. And I will almost a kind of conquering optimism that you get from Mill and what a person could be and what reason could be. And I think Carlyle is like all superstition and you know, like I'm a tiny flawed thing who will live for a short time in an endless world that I will never understand. And, um, and I kind of think when I was leaving religion that I'd grown up in and moving into this other world of like, I oh, will try to be reasonable and I'll try to understand and everything. And I will try to sharpen my intellect and I will, I will leave my tiny little community in Idaho and I'll go to BYU and I'll go to Cambridge and I'll go to New York and I will like travel and move through the world. And then there is this other energy that you can have in your life, which I think is more of a yielding submissive is maybe the wrong word, but definitely a kind of yielding the Thomas Carlyle, like I am this tiny thing. And I honestly think that there's a lot you get out of, I think you need both to live a balanced life. And I think Mill knew that in a way, which is why he tries to kind of create these, maybe that is where the religion of humanity comes from, is this attempt to kind of access that other life. I had this paragraph that I found when I was reading Carlyle last time, and it's a little bit long, and I kind of want to read it to you, but you might end up cutting it Please out. Do. But I think it illustrates what I'm talking about, where he... He has these ideas that it's all about awe and it's all about wonder, which is such a different standpoint. Like, let's understand. And he has this idea that science is science is tricky because once we think that we know what a scientific name is or we think we understand something, we just we dismiss it from us using that. We, we actually don't understand it, but we think we do. And that's worse. So anyway, he has this he has this paragraph about time. 
And he says, the great mystery of time, were there no other, the illimitable, silent, never-resting thing called time, rolling, rushing on, swift, silent, like an all-embracing ocean tide, on which we and the universe swim, like exhalations, like apparitions, which are and then are not. This is forever, very literally, a miracle, a thing to strike us dumb, for we have no word to speak about it. The universe, ah me, what could wild man know of it? What can we yet know? That it is a force, a thousandfold complexity of forces, a force which is not we. That is all. It is not we. It is altogether different from us. Force, force, everywhere force. We ourselves a mysterious force in the center of that. There is not a leaf rotting on the highway but has force in it. How else could it rot? Nay, surely to the atheistic thinker, if such a one were possible, it must be a miracle too, this huge, illimitable whirlwind of force, which envelops us here, never resting whirlwind, high as immensity, old as eternity. What is it? God's creation, the religious people answer. It is the almighty God's. Atheistic science babbles poorly of it with scientific nomenclatures, experiments, and whatnot, as if it were a poor dead thing to be bottled up in laden jars and sold over counters. But the natural sense of man in all times, if he will honestly apply his sense, proclaims it to be a living thing, an unspeakable godlike thing, towards which the best attitude for us, after never so much science, is awe, devout prostration and humility of soul, worship, if not in words, then in silence. And that was John Stuart Mill's friend. It's amazing. This It's a totally different attitude to living, to what a human being is, to what wonder is, to what reason is. You know, I like to read Carlyle, I think, almost almost as a reminder of all the things that I don't know and that I'll never know, like dropping a penny down a well and just hearing how far it goes and knowing I will never descend to that place. Like, I will never... I will never understand all of this. And I think Mill is the opposite. Mill is we can understand, we will understand, we will progress, we'll climb the mountain. And Carlisle is there are mountains we will never climb. And I really love both. And I really think you need both in your life. So I, I read Carlisle almost the way that I read poetry, which is not to understand things, but to understand all the things I don't understand. Claire, do you want to have the last word? Oh my goodness! I'm not sure I can I can top that. I I was thinking, you know, I really hope David doesn't ask me what my comfort read is. I uh, want to know I, what your comfort I, I just, read is. Well, because, <laughs> no, because I just don't know what I would say. And I was thinking, why don't I not know what I would say? And I think that's because I perhaps don't read for comfort. Maybe that's the problem. So I can think of all kinds of great books and books that I've read over and over again, but often they're ones I find discomforting, mm. right? Really profoundly discomforting. So when I was listening to Tara there, I could I totally can get the comfort in that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and John Stuart Mill, there are a million ways you could describe him. It's not a comfort read. Anyone who tells you John Stuart Mill is their comfort read is is odd. I would never, and I loved Mill. I would never say that. <laughs> well, but is that because of content or, or style, right? I mean, he's, he's not a kind of comforting style, right? You have to work quite hard. Well, you have to work pretty hard to read Carl. I mean, that, yeah. that even reading it yeah. just there, I would like, I am yeah. paying attention. Like, you cannot read right. this man and just be like, what do you Because the sentences are, you know, 200 words long. Like, <laughs> but the comfort of, it, it is a human thing, right? To sense comfort in the idea that maybe we are nothing. There's something deeply appealing about it. 
Well, okay, perhaps I I could say this. So what I do find comforting is a certain thought of, of acceptance, of acceptance of ourselves as we are, how we find ourselves. Um, I mean, this is something that I draw out in my most recent book about the unmodified body, right, where I say, look, what we should be aiming for politically is an acceptance that our bodies can be okay just as they are. They can be good enough just as they are. And it's that idea that we could find comfort in the sense that we have limits and, and those limits are okay, which is very, very much not the message that Mill gives us. It's also not the message that we have in contemporary culture, which is focused always on improvement, perfection, making the self ever better. So that idea that we have limits and that we can't ever hope to be perfect, nor should we have that as a goal, I think that is comforting. That is reassuring. I find it very comforting. I find there's something for all the striving energy that you give in your life. Like I will reach the higher peak. I will keep going. It's really, it's a, it's a humble thing every once in a while to say, I will never get there and to relax into that. And I think it protects you a bit from arrogance. I do think that that guy, when I was at Cambridge, Andrew, who turned to me and said, I've never met anyone who I liked, who thought these things, I never met anyone at all who thought these things. Can you help me out here? Is it's the penny going into the well. (laughs) I don't understand this and I'm interested in it. I will never really understand it, but I'm here and you're here and neither one of us are all knowing and let's talk. Claire Chambers's book Intact, A Defense of the Unmodified Body is just out in paperback from Penguin. You can get it wherever you get your books as you can, of course, also get Tara Westover's wonderful memoir, Educated. Next week, something almost completely different. We're going to be talking about asteroids, space collisions, and space aliens. And coming up soon, more episodes in the history of ideas, starting with Thoreau on civil disobedience. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.